Time for Baldry's Beat, Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Hey, Keith. Good morning. Okay, let's start with John Horgan and the potential Mm -hmm. for this bubble zone legislation around schools and hospitals. I just talked to interim liberal leader Shirley Bond about that. She didn't really say she was for it or against it. Just said they'd look at any legislation that comes forward. Quebec just did it, right? Yep. Do you think that's something that needs to be done? I mean, we've seen you know a small number of protests outside of hospitals and schools. Well, small number, but large in size outside that outside uh, VGH a couple weeks ago. Uh, Quebec's legislation has uh, rules, uh, pretty significant fines uh, for organizers of protests outside of uh, healthcare facilities and schools. So Horgan yesterday said, "Yeah, we're we're uh, we're looking at uh, legislation or uh, existing legislation and making a policy change." Well, let's play a clip of that. So here is Premier John Horgan on this point yesterday. We are working, uh, the Attorney General and the Solicitor General, on legislation or perhaps policy changes to existing uh, regulations to protect uh, workers and those that are accessing those services. Okay, well, the legislature is back in session next month, right? That's right. And and this would be very popular. There is zero appetite appetite out there in the public for people trying to go into schools or blocking health. But isn't that illegal already? It is, but so, uh, so again, I, I'm not sure you need legislation. I think yeah. maybe you need a policy ch- clarification. Healthcare facilities, though, uh, I think that's where the bubble zone is going to be. I think it's going to be around because we saw that with abortion clinics in the 1990s, and I think that demonstration outside blocking ambulances into VGH last month was just unacceptable to people. And again, this will be very popular with uh, with the public. I mean vaccine passports are controversial, but poll after poll after poll shows 70-80% support for them. I think the support for a bubble zone would be even higher than that. Okay, I spoke to interim liberal leader Shirley Bond on the show this morning. We talked about COVID cases in the north. Of course, she represents a riding in Prince George. And a lot of those northern ridings are pretty much exclusively liberal territory. And a lot of those liberal MLAs have been getting a lot of pushback when they go public with support for vaccines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they get protests outside their office. They get threats. Which is ridiculous. Yeah, well, you know, she, well, she, said, she said that, you know, you got to put politics aside at a time like this. And the liberals have worked, have worked pretty closely with the government on this. Shirley Bond's doing a great job. Uh, Dan Davies, Mike Bernier. And the, yeah. and the Peace River has the lowest vaccination rate in the entire province. But the two MLAs are really trying to correct that and trying to get people vaccinated. They're taking the heat from the locals who, for various reasons, are not getting vaccinated. But uh, Dawson Creek and Port St. John, which those two represent, have really low vaccination rates. Shirley Bond, the rural uh, outside of Prince George, has low vaccination rates. She's doing her best to get uh, people, to convince people to get vaccinated because the North, as you and I have talked all week, in a world of hurt, you've got... um, you know, thirty more than thirty people in the hospital. They don't have a lot of beds up there, but more importantly, yeah. they don't have a lot of staff. They don't have a lot no. of critical care nurses. So, fifteen people have had to been airlifted out of the Northern Health Authority into Metro Vancouver and the Capital Region this week because there just simply isn't the resources to treat them. And these are very seriously ill people, unvaccinated people with COVID-19. One of the things that she told me this morning was they want more localized data on COVID cases community by community. Mm -hmm. So she said if they were able to present a clear number of COVID cases in a particular town, a particular community, that that maybe might help to convince people to get yeah, the vaccine. Uh, very good argument. Good for sure to make that argument. I've been making that argument since day one. We want community by community uh, data. So yeah. why don't you, they release that? If you look at the Center for Disease Control website, uh, the Peace River area, which is vast, it's huge. You know, it's the size of a European country. It's divided into north and south. 
Well, that doesn't tell you exactly the numbers in Dawson Creek and Fort St. John in terms of sick people. We do get the vaccination rates on a on a community basis. So I don't know sure why we can't get the COVID cases on a community basis. We get every day I get a vaccination report that shows how many people in Dawson Creek are vaccinated and how many people are not vaccinated. Why we can't get a, a, a similar report when it comes to how many people in Dawson Creek are in hospital, how many of them in ICU. That's the stuff, type of stuff uh, that we need. Okay. There's a, uh, Justin Trudeau has been reelected as the prime minister. The liberals are back with a minority government in the, uh, the Groundhog Day election. And right away, we're back to kind of the battle uh, over health care funding in Canada. So nothing, you can see. Nothing unites the premiers more. <laughs> like they put all their ideological differences aside. Jason Kenney, Doug Ford, John Horgan. Nothing in common except when they come together and ask Ottawa for money. That's what happened yesterday. They had their first uh, first, uh, first premier's uh, conference or uh, council of the federation yeah. meeting since the election. And what do you know? They came up with a, a, an ask of the federal government, $28 billion for health care. Okay, well, let's listen to Horgan on that yesterday. So here's Horgan asking the feds for more money for health care. Premier's agreed. There's urgent, pressing need to act on long-term sustainable health care funding. We want to do that, as we've been saying for many, many years now, through stable, predictable increases in the Canada Health Transfer. For too long, the federal government has been diminishing their contribution to public health care, and we believe that diminishment has to stop, and we need to get back to a better relationship where at least 35% of public health funding comes from Ottawa. Okay, I guess, you know, for most taxpayers, there's only one taxpayer, like they say, yeah. so where does the money come from? But how, why is this important? Well, it's... Uh, it, the pressure on provincial budgets, which are smaller than federal, the federal government's budget from healthcare, is significant every year. Yeah. The costs go up. So, at the beginning of our public healthcare system in the sixties, when it was first created, it was a fifty-fifty proposition. The feds would pay half, the provinces would pay half. That has changed over time, where the now the federal government only pays twenty-two percent of healthcare costs. The province has to pick up the rest. So the province, by having to pick up the rest, means it, in days of balanced budgets meant there was less money for other things in the, the provincial coffers, education, transportation, social services. More and more money was going to health care because the feds were reducing their share. Stephen Harper controversially brought in a policy a number of years ago that tied the increase in health care spending from Ottawa tied to economic growth numbers. So when you only had 2% economic growth, you only got a 2% increase. Well, healthcare costs are more than that because of the aging population. So this has been a source of tension between the provinces and Ottawa for a long <laughs> time. And now that the election's over and, and the pre-election campaign's gone, I mean, the premiers actually made this request last March for $28 billion. It went nowhere because of the pandemic. A lot of things go nowhere. Uh, but now they're renewing their call. And we'll see. They're asking for a meeting with Justin Trudeau very soon. We'll see where this goes. Okay, taking a look at uh, some of the breaking news on Twitter here, that uh, multiple news organizations saying that uh, Meng Wanzhou, the Chinese tech executive with Huawei, set to do a deal yeah. with uh, federal prosecutors in the United States in some sort of plea, plea deal in which she would be allowed to go free. Go home. And she just she left her mansion in the in the West End of Vancouver a short time ago to go to an office for a virtual court appearance in a Brooklyn, in Brooklyn. New York yeah. uh, courtroom. So, you know, huge day, massive development on this three-year-long saga. And maybe the two among, Michaels come home. As what's your result. take on that? Well, I mean, if this is... 
developing the way we think it's developing. If she's going to go home and not face penalties in the States, uh, this does open the door potentially for the two Michaels to come on. Maybe this breaks the stalemate that's been there for so long. Yeah, I mean, that's what everyone, for, for most Hopefully. Canadians, is bring our people home yeah. who've been used like pawns in this international power game. Let me play a clip here for you, Keith, get your thoughts. So this is Vina Najibullah, who is the wife of Michael Kovrig, uh, a couple of weeks back on the show. Uh, talking about her husband's case. Have a listen to this. The reality, Mike, is that um, in Canadian system, uh, sorry, Chinese system, it's 99.9% .9 uh, guilty verdict. So there's no real surprise here. I mean, of course, I I'm hoping for a miracle, but the reality is that outcome is virtually a certainty. So what we need to continue to do is focus on our efforts to resolve this politically and diplomatically to finally bring him home. This isn't a real legal uh, case, right? I mean, we've known since day one that uh, this is, there's a bigger context here, and the solution also will come in that uh, way through a political and diplomatic um, outcome. Okay, Avina Najibullah there. Mm -hmm. She's the wife of Michael Kovrig, and she's an amazing person. Mm -hmm. She's been the strongest person fighting for his release. And hopefully this is the light at the end of the tunnel well, if this you know, the, deal happens. The, the, the Biden administration inherited this from the Trump administration. Right. So I can see why they would, you know, necessarily change their position on this and find some sort of compromise. So if she goes home, uh, no penalties, uh, hopefully the two Michaels come, and hopefully, come back. And hopefully they come home soon because yes. uh, there's a precedent for this. There's a guy named Kevin Garrett. You may be familiar mm -hmm. with this case, a guy from Vancouver. Very similar circumstances several years ago where a Chinese national was arrested in Canada on charge, drug trafficking charges, and the Chinese official basically arrested this guy and his wife from Vancouver in China. Mm -hmm and took him away to a secret jail, and he was in jail for a couple of years. And once the case against the Chinese national was resolved here, he was immediately released. Boom. Like yeah. 36 hours later, he was back at, yeah. at YVR. There's no justice so, system in China. It's just it, is, it operates in a completely different set of rules. So hopefully, if she returns home, the two Michaels come back. Yeah, here. hopefully. And hopefully okay. soon. Hopefully soon. Baldry's beat Keith Baldry. It's looking at uh, multiple news out, uh, news outlets now reporting that there there is a deal for Meng Wanzhou, the Chinese tech executive, mm -hmm. to be freed. So BBC News reporting. New York Times. New York Times reporting this. Huawei's Meng Wanzhou to be Good freed in U.S. Me. deal. So, yep. you know, this is what we anticipate is there's, there's a deal here in which she goes free. Uh, maybe yeah, I guess she returns to China. Yeah, her I have house to wonder ends whether, in Vancouver. how much of this is all worth it. This long-running drama, the resources, keeping two Canadian citizens in prison because she got embroiled in the Iran embargo. I mean, really, this uh, the crime doesn't fit the consequences at all. Phone me on this now. Do you think Canada did enough to free the two Michaels? Do you think the two Michaels will be coming home soon? Should Canada have done more? 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free on your cell. If you're anti-vax, we don't want to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, well, enough of you. we... Uh, you know, we played this very dramatic interview with a, a woman in hospital in Victoria yeah, this morning. Yeah. And it was on our newscast last night. Yeah, and this is a global news exclusive from yesterday, and we played the, we played the interview at length this morning. Um, and she did not take the vaccine. She felt that, um, she felt that because she had had uh, some serious mm -hmm. illness as a child, she shouldn't take it. She felt that she could, if she did get COVID, she could ride it out. And she's now pleading with people, don't make the same mistake. Yeah. I did. Take take the vaccine. Charlene. I mean, so. and, 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 oh, you know, again, a hope for the best outcome possible for her. 
Yesterday in the front page of the Times columnist, a heartbreaking story of a father went public. His 29-year-old daughter, again, read something on the Internet, thought maybe she shouldn't take the vaccine, and she died. She was in, she was in ICU for a number of days on a ventilator, and she passed away. And that's happening. I mean, there are people in their 20s dying of COVID-19 in their 30s. Yesterday, we had a number of deaths reported, one person in their 50s. The week before, we had a number of people in their 40s die. This is not about people in long-term care dying from COVID-19. It's every age group is vulnerable. Yeah, one of the one of the things in that dramatic interview we played this morning that jumped out at me too was that it came on, like, you know, she started coughing, she had headaches, and then it got progressively worse over a series of many days. Mm-hmm. So it was something like 10 days or something before she ended up in the hospital as it just got worse and worse and worse. She said at one point she had called 911, talked to a 911 operator and paramedics who said that, you know, she didn't sound bad enough to go to hospital and she just continued to isolate at home but then she continued to get worse and worse oh, and, and worse. There, there are many people what we call long haulers yeah. who get COVID-19 they're pronounced recovered after 14 days that's the incubation period but they continue to have months and months of suffering from long-term ailments resulting from COVID-19 loss of taste loss of smell sense of smell sense of taste also uh, chronic fatigue uh, brain fog, what people call brain fog, where they literally cannot walk up a, a flight of stairs. They can't remember things, and that pr- can persist a long time. So if you're one of these anti-vaxxers and, uh, and not getting vaccinated, you're basically playing Russian roulette with your body. That's why I thought it was important to play that tape, you know, to really bring it home for people. I mean, we hear so much from, like, talking heads and people talking with mm-hmm. statistics and hospital numbers, but... Real when you, people. When you actually hear from someone who's who's going through it, and you can hear her struggling for breath, you can hear her oxygen oxygen machine going. Mm-hmm. You can hear her talk about how the the thing that she wants to do most in the world is to hug her kid, her two kids again. It brings it home. You know, I mean, if you listen to that, I, I can't think of a more sort of powerful testimony uh, for getting the vaccine than something like that. That interview so. should be played at every anti-vax rally. I don't be, know if uh, it makes a difference, though. Because it, it not. No, those people are, seem to be almost religious about their anti-science uh, uh, attitude. There's going to be another rally in the front page, of the front steps of the legislature okay. uh, this weekend, and there, there's no reasoning with them. Squeeze in a quick call. Richard and Chilliwack. Hi, Richard. Yeah, what makes you think you're going to send the two Michaels home if they do? So that means they'll be admitting to the fact that this is done in retaliation. So I don't think they're going to send them home just because they're who they are. I, I think they will, uh, just based on precedent. We've we've seen earlier precedents where this kind of mm-hmm. hostage diplomacy pay, plays out. One side gets what they want, and then they send our people home. This is the way they, they operate. And when Michael Spavor was sentenced about a month ago, in the in the actual sentence by this so-called court in China, it said there was an extradition yeah. uh, element to it, they that he could be extradited. They opened the door so, to it. you know, I, I I think that they will come home. It's just a question of, I, I think, of when. No, they opened the door point. to extradition. The big unknown was the timing. How, would it be uh, next month, next year, 10 years from now? Yeah. There was no timeline set on an extradition agreement. Keith, thanks for coming All in. Right. All Have right. Have a great weekend. That is Keith Baldry, and that's Baldry's Beat. Thanks.